Because creating jobs means creating the conditions for everyone to thrive. Because families know best what their children need for educational success. It's our job to listen and help make it happen. Because futures filled with opportunity are unlocked when you read, write, draw, discuss, and dream. Today on Because Radio, the Blue Thunderbird Land-Based Teachings Learning Center informs, educates, and inspires students. We visit the Transcona Museum on a road trip. This week's Winnipeg Impact Maker Travis Fayou shares his experience with Pay It Forward. And we'll have a preview of the latest episode of Because and Effect featuring Bruce McDonald of Imagine Canada. We've got all this and more on Because Radio. Hello and welcome to Because Radio, episode number seven. My name is Robert Zirk. My co-host, Sonny Primolo, is away on vacation this week. He is in Victoria right now. So, Sonny, hope you're having a great trip and having a great time there in Victoria. And we'll see you soon. Sonny still has some Winnipeg Impact Makers to highlight for us while he's away. And uh, we'll hear about Travis Fayou. He was a recipient of Pay It Forward Winnipeg and we'll learn about his experiences with Pay It Forward and and how he plans on giving back as well. We'll also have excerpts from Nolan Bicknell's conversation with Bruce McDonald for Because and Effect, where we'll learn a little bit more about some of the insights and trends surrounding charitable giving in Canada. It's the first week of June, and that also means that it's time to bring back Road Trip, where we visit museums and archives from across the province. And this week, Producer Jeremy Morantz visited the Transcona Museum, and we'll learn more about the museum's artifacts, exhibits, and stories. And to start things off today, our foundation feature will once again focus on literacy, education, and employment. Producer Nolan Bicknell recently visited the Blue Thunderbird Land-Based Teachings Learning Center in the Seven Oaks School Division to learn a little bit more about how it's creating learning opportunities for students based on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, as well as the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. This week's foundation feature on Because Radio focuses on literacy, education, and employment. Thank you for listening to Because Radio. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and last week I visited the Blue Thunderbird Land-Based Teachings Learning Center in the Seven Oaks School Division to learn about one of the many grants that the Winnipeg Foundation has granted through their new reconciliation granting stream. The center aims to inform, educate, and inspire students from all walks of life to take care of the land, learn and understand the historical context of that land, and make connections, connections that have been lost over generations. The center is still under construction in a lot of ways, but there are already some really cool things that students and others can see and do while they're there. I was taken on a tour and was able to talk to Alexis Nazaravich, the program coordinator for Blue Thunderbird Land-Based Teachings Learning Center, and here's our conversation on location. For someone who's never heard of the Blue Thunderbird Land-Based Teaching Center, what, how would you describe it in uh, you know, a minute or less? Okay, a multi-use facility. Uh, within Seven Oaks School Division. 
Uh, it houses our maintenance and transportation department on 49 acres, um, and also a place of uh, land-based teaching on those same 49 acres for the students in our division and our community. So you kind of took me for a little tour around here, and we kind of saw all the different areas and different plants and different species that are going to be here. What are you hoping that people who visit here take away when they go on tours or when they experience what, what, what it has to offer? I think the, the wonder that is in our province, both um, ecologically and historically, so really a connection to the landscape again. Um, this was formerly farmland, so it is transitioning from what was farmland into a, a restored uh, tall grass prairie uh, ecosystem. And like I said, on a multi-use site. So I think the, the hopeful takeaway is um, that, that awe that comes with coming to know a landscape and seeing all of the relationships that take place right before us. But we do need to pay attention to them to see them. We were talking a little bit too about the transformation that the land has had. Um, how are you going to impart that story or that history when, when kids and when teachers come through here? How, how important is that historical context? I think it's very important, yeah. I think knowing where we've come from is, is crucial to knowing where we are today and where we're going in the future and to develop a sense of that responsibility and ownership we have in our stewardship today. So I think it's very hard to understand, I think, land stewardship and ecological stewardship without knowing your ecosystem. Um, Right? We have to reconnect to our ecosystem to know how it functions so that we know that we are working with it. We understand that engineering and those systems and functions and that we can mimic those. Um, but as well with our history, that we understand what our landscape was not so long ago, even a short 200 years ago, and that uh, the disappearance of our grasslands, over 99%, is uh, a, a mirror of uh, the disappearance as well of our, our indigenous cultures and traditions here on, our, on the same landscape. These things are related. Um, so as we come to know our shared history better, I, th I think it will help us to grow in closer relationship to each other when we come to these realizations. We know it's only been a short time ago that these atrocities were experienced um, and that it's up to all of us to reshape our connections with the land and with each other. How are we? How is the um, the center going to incorporate the indigenous teachings and medicines, and and how is that going to be a part of the the sort of daily experience? Mm. I think just acknowledging that we are on Treaty One land and acknowledging our history. You know, starting with that story, starting with our roots, um, we start on the right foot. We start with that story. Uh, we start with that acknowledgement. We don't start just here or with recent you know agricultural stories. We go farther back. The nice thing about learning from the land is that the land is already teaching us that. Uh, we have, like I said, um, previously farmed land, but the right-of-way is full of indigenous species of grasses and flowers and a lot of wildlife. So that biodiversity is evident here, and that to me is the introduction. Um, the other way is um, many teachers, many perspectives. So elders are a key component um, to, to the team here that teach and share. What has the response been of some of the kids and teachers who have come through here already for tours and for, for sessions? Uh, the last group didn't want to go home. <laughs> they didn't want to go back to school. So that, that's been really great. Um, I think goosebumps. We've had quite a, quite a few days. We've been lucky. The weather's been nice. It's been hot, but we've had goosebumps because we realize that the kids are curious. They're exploring. They're making connections. They're asking great questions. They're interpreting what they see. They're processing what they see. They don't see this as um, 
a landscape that's just really a lot of mud at this point because we're just starting. They see the possibility, they see the scale, they see their responsibility, um, they're understanding that this is also their job and they're taking the lead um, in terms of even taking care of this place. They're cleaning up litter, they're taking care of their own impact, they're making sure that they clean up after themselves and they're looking forward to projects. They're thinking about what projects they're going to be a part of here. On a, on a bigger scale of how our relationship with the land is, what do you think this um, center's role is going to be in reconnecting people with their, with their sort of roots? Pardon the pun. Mm, yeah, reconnecting with our roots. Um, you know, we talked a little before about experiences, how we can be told things, but they don't always make as much sense until we go and experience them for ourselves. Um, so, you know, you can be told what a bird is, uh, what it looks like and what it sounds like, but it's until you hear that on your own and you say, what's that bird and who's singing that song? And you look it up and you do some work, um, then you remember. So reconnecting to our roots, I really think it's, it's sharing an experience here, um, being hands-on, making explorations, asking questions, and not just being told. It's not just about being told. Uh, having this interpreted for you, it's, it's about coming up with those questions and finding those answers yourself. And really, so much of what we do is connected to our roots. You know, the plants that we have, it's connected to our history here, uh, the tall grass prairie, which connects us back to not just ecology, but also to our social and cultural history. We were talking about the experiential learning too and how it's kind of, it's a little less structured, but why is that important for, for kids to take away um, a more sort of profound experience rather than just sitting and reading from a book? I think they, they might have a better idea of what to do with the information that they um, gather on their own, you know, through their own curiosity and through their own interests. You know, again, we talked too about how we're distinct but equal. We have different interests. We're drawn to different things. Different things will interest different people. And the beauty of this place is there's a lot to offer. So having that diverse interest base is great because some will be interested in birds, some will be interested in soil, water, climate change, carbon sequestration, cover crops, growing food. It's, it's, all of these things are possible. So having the kids, um, I think also when they lead that discovery, um, there's a reason why they're attracted to what they're attracted to. Um, putting that whole class together and seeing what those diverse interests might be means that we actually get a really good picture of all the things that are happening here. And it's, uh, they're actually all contributing because they've each picked up something that they're interested in and followed it through to provide some kind of feedback about what they found and why it's significant. I think it sticks with them. It almost, you see what's relevant to them and then that helps you understand what this place can actually offer. Absolutely, and gives us another basis of talking about relationships. How each piece that we look at is connected to something else, it's all interconnected. So again, it equates it, right? All of that diversity, it equates it to say that it's equally as valuable. So how do we steward the land so that we make sure we can keep this biodiversity intact and preserve it on the landscape? And again, it's always a social reflection. Um, people, we are diverse as people too, and we need our diversity, so we should be proud of it. I'm hoping that we can check in with you sort of in the next few years as this project evolves and grows and, and continues to flourish. Um, what is the next, what is the in, the in the immediate future for the Thunderbird Land House? Okay, immediate future. Uh, really, it's encouraging our uh, 
school community and community in general to just come to know this place. Really, I think it's when you meet a person for the first time or you get to know their name, you get to know their history, what they are like. It's really like meeting a person. We want you to come and get to know the land, come to explore it, ask questions, get to know the site map, get to know the plans that we have here and feel a part of our land stewardship plan because many hands will make this possible. And uh, that's the goal. It's to be done as a community. So the more hands, the better. I'd say that's relationship building phase is the first thing. Um, the second thing would be, of course, our land stewardship doesn't wait. It starts, it started even last year. So um, data collection, we were talking about keeping a good eye on what birds and what species of insects and animals and plants we see now so that we can track our changes over time and uh, getting some seeds in the ground. So making sure we're improving our soil right from the beginning, we're conserving it, it's not eroding, we're adding nutrients back, and we're preparing the ground uh, for prairie restoration as well as gardening. And summer camps, right? Right around the corner, summer camps. So we wanna encourage all of our summer camps. Um, we're just lining those up right now. Cool. Uh, so they'll come out and they'll cook, they'll do art, and they'll do some gardening. So if anyone out there wants to reconnect with the land and is in this area and would like to learn more, where can they find out more information? Uh, our Seven Oaks School Division website under Seven Oaks Grows, or you can search um, Blue Thunderbird Land-Based Teachings Learning Center. We've got a great Instagram account as well that can basically show you the chronology of our project, um, so you can get up to speed there. Uh, just connect with us and we can connect you with a volunteer opportunity or a guided tour. All right, join us for a bird count. Awesome. Alexis, thank you so much for the tour today. Thanks for taking us around, and we'll, we're happy to check in along the way and see how this is all going to evolve and grow. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Nolan. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're excited to bring back a popular segment from River City 360 last summer, and that is the Because Radio Road Trip. Each week we'll be visiting a museum or archive in Manitoba to learn more about the exhibits and artifacts that they have. Today's first road trip takes us to the Transcona Museum, where producer Jeremy Morant spoke with curator Alana Hereda about the museum's work in showcasing the history and stories of Transcona. Welcome to the Because Radio Road Trip. Today we're visiting the Transcona Museum. Let's go. I'm Jeremy Morantz. I'm standing in the Transcona Museum right in the heart of downtown Transcona. We drove under the arch, the, the famous arch to get here. I'm here with Alana Hereda, who is the museum curator for Transcona. Thank you for talking to me today. Oh, thanks for coming in. So we've had a tour already of the museum. You gave us a wonderful tour. And one thing you, of course, noticed right off the bat is how impactful the railway was to the community of Transcona before Unicity, when it was a town and a city. So talk about how important the railway is to Transcona. Well, Transcona wouldn't actually exist if it wasn't for the railway. In 1907-1908, the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway purchased land to build their railway shops, and they chose this location. Uh, the land was cheaper than in Winnipeg, and it wasn't near any uh, rivers, so it didn't have chances of flooding. So when they decided to build their shops here, it was central, it was in the heart of the continent, uh, it was close to Winnipeg, 
but far enough away that land was just a little bit cheaper. Uh, so they started constructing. And with starting and building the shops, the workers who were building the the shops buildings themselves started building their own homes in this area. Businesses started moving in. So the community actually grew up from the shops. Um, prior to the shops even being here, there was a community close by called Southwin, another uh, community called Montevista. They both are no longer around um, because essentially Transcona overtook everything. Um, the name Transcona actually even comes from the railway. Trans from the Transcontinental Railway and Kona from Lord Strathcona. And the name was actually a contest that they held to name the town. And, and that was the winning entry. What you notice right away when you walk into the museum is just how riddled it is with artifacts uh, and historical pieces from the railway. How do you go about collecting all of those, all that memorabilia? All of the items that we have in our collection have been donated by the community. So our focus here at the Transcona Museum is to uh, tell the stories of Transcona. So all items that are donated to the museum have to fit within our mission, and that's to um, preserve and promote the community spirit of Transcona through sharing our history and stories for the benefit of all. So everything that you see is from Transcona, has a strong Transcona connection. Um, sometimes we're offered things that are really, really great artifacts, but they don't relate back to our mission statement. So we always offer up other museums that places uh, people could donate items to, but everything has come from the community. And we're so grateful for that, that, that the community has, has shared so much of their history in, in the 51 years we've been in existence. One thing you mentioned on uh, the tour was the, the Women in Rail exhibit that you're currently working on putting together. Uh, you were mentioning that you put out a call to the community uh, for more artifacts. So do you want to talk about the importance of, of that? We're always asked, um, what was uh, women's role at the Transcona shops? Uh, like during the war, did women go to the shops to do the work because men went off to war? And that didn't happen here at our uh, railway shops. The railways was deemed an essential service. So men did not have to enlist, many men did, but uh, women were not brought in to fulfill those roles at the Transcona shops. There were women who did work um, earlier on in more secretarial um, type positions, but then um, I believe it was in the 80s, CN opened up um, the actual trades to women more and started promoting that to women more. And that's one area in our collection that we're missing. We don't have any of those uh, women who worked at the Transcona shops, um, doing the work of the shops, artifacts related to them. We have some stories, um, but we don't have any physical artifacts of women. So uh, if anyone listening knows of a woman who worked at the Transcona shops or did work at the Transcona shops that has some, some items from their time there, like your hard hat or safety vest or something related to the work that you did there, we would love to um, add it to our our exhibit um, because our women's section is, is empty at the moment. Um, and you could look at either donating them or just loaning them to us for the period of time of the exhibit. I think it's really great that you have that exhibit in the works. Of course, we're in the middle of the 100th anniversary of the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. Uh, we've done a lot of celebrating this year. Transcona did play a role in that uh, strike and many other strikes over the years as well. So can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, as we were doing research um, for previous exhibits going through the old Transcona newspapers, uh, in the 1960 newspapers, we found reference to the fact that there was a local shutdown of the Transcona shops during the Winnipeg General Strike, which was from May 15th to June 21st. But not all departments were affected. Um, and part of the reason why I think it, it was that research in the, 60, uh, the newspapers in the 60s talking about it was in 1919, Transcona did not have its own local newspaper. So we don't have um, that information in our archives. We have almost every other year of newspapers in our archives here at the museum. So because there was no newspaper, we don't have those firsthand stories of what was going on in this community during the Winnipeg general strike. But we do know that there was a local shutdown here, and the Transcona shops did shut down in solidarity um, with the other striking workers. Today is a very important day in the history of the rail and the history of Transcona. Can you tell us about it? So today, June 6th, is actually the 100th anniversary of CN. So CN turns 100 today, um, and the Transcona shops actually became CN shops uh, in their history. So we're strongly connected to CN here in Transcona. And our exhibit, Transcona's Railway Journey, is also dedicated this year to CN 100. So we're celebrating that as well. The Transcona Museum is also really proud that this current exhibit, Transcona's Railway Journey, is also being sponsored by CN. Um, so as they're celebrating their 100th, um, you know, they're, they're helping us celebrate their 100th too by helping sponsor this exhibit. I was on your website and you told us a little bit about this uh, on the tour. You have an actual steam locomotive that was used way back when in your possession. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, we recently acquired the CN2747. It was the first steam locomotive built in the Western region, and it was built at the Transcona shops. Uh, once it was retired from service late 59, early 1960s, it was actually donated um, to the local Kiwanis Club of Transcona by CN. And it went in what was then known as the Kiwanis Park here in Transcona, and it was to represent the founding of the community and the community's you know, most of the people who lived in the community, uh, worked in the community, had connections to the railway. So it was just celebrating Transcona's railway history. Um, then later and around the 1980s, the engine was donated to the Midwestern Rail Association. Uh, so they're the group that run the Winnipeg Railway Museum. And then in 2015, uh, we acquired the 2747. We purchased it for $1 from the Midwestern Rail Association, and so it is now our engine. So in 2017, we uh, hired JP uh, Heritage Consulting to do a conservation assessment on the engine as it's been sitting in the park since 1960. And he looked it over inch by inch and let us know all the work that is required to to really stabilize it and to ensure that it has a long, preser like a long life so we can preserve it. Um, so we started that preservation work last year, um, working through all his recommendations, and, and we still have a, a ways to go. Uh, we were actually just successful in a grant application to the Winnipeg Foundation for $20,000 to have it blast cleaned and repainted. And our, our overall goal is to actually build a shelter structure over the engine to further protect it from the elements. And water is one of the most damaging elements to it at the moment. So the more we can protect it from water, the longer life it's going to have. That's definitely something we're going to go check out and take pictures of, uh, and our listeners should as well. Uh, the Transcona Museum also has all kinds of events going on, very active. One thing I noticed was uh, Amazing Race Transcona. 
Yeah, this will be the third year that we've done it. It's a Canada Day program that we run, and it works like the Amazing Race. Uh, what the teams do is they have to race around the community finding locations, but based on historical photographs. So, um, you know, places change, things look different, and then once they get there, they have to take a picture and post it on social media, either doing a specific action, acting something out, and then use specific hashtags, and the team that finishes first is the winner. So members of the Transcona community or members of the Winnipeg community at large, if they want to learn more about the Transcona Museum or come visit the Transcona Museum, where do they go? What do they do? Where would you direct them? Uh, our website is www.transconamuseum.mb.ca. We are also active on social media. So Facebook um, is just Transcona Museum, Twitter at Transcona Museum, Instagram at Transcona Museum, and we publish all of our events and post historical photos, promote our activities all there. Um, you can also come to the museum. We're located at 141 Regent Avenue West. So we're right on the corner of Regent and Bond Street. And uh, we are open in the summertime. We've just switched to our summer hours. So uh, Monday to Saturdays, nine to four. Great, thank you so much for talking to me today. This was great. Yes, thank you so much for coming down. Thanks for joining us on the Because Radio Road Trip. We'll see you next week, same time, different place. Thanks, Jeremy. Up next, my co-host Sonny Primolo has been highlighting impact makers in our community as part of our Winnipeg Impact Makers segment. Last week, he spoke with Ryan DeLong, who launched Pay It Forward Winnipeg, and this week is a continuation of that story, as we'll hear Sonny's conversation with one of the recipients of Pay It Forward Winnipeg, Travis Veyu. Welcome back to Because Radio. I'm Sonny Pomolo. As you all know, Manitoba is home to some of the most giving people in the country. To share those stories, I'm going around the city to speak with impact makers in Winnipeg. This week, I'm with Travis Veyu, one of the deserving recipients of Pay It Forward Winnipeg, who we spoke with last week. Uh, thanks for joining us on Because Radio. Yeah, no problem, man. Appreciate it. So to get started, can you give us a little history on Travis, and why do you think you were chosen to be the recipient of this gift? I guess just because I've been in an avid encore with the Main Street Project Detox ever since uh, 2002 on on and off for 16 years I wow. guess and I've developed a lot of solid I want to say friendships uh, good acquaintances anyway for sure with the the employees and um, I guess they just they knew what I was capable of I just didn't give myself a chance so I think that's why I think Rick was the one who uh, passed it on to uh, Ryan and I met Ryan uh, um, yeah when I went and visited Rick it was pretty cool mm. what was that aha moment that happened to you that made you go you know what i'm done with this i need to make some changes what what made you do that um the psychosis the the schizophrenic episodes was really uh was really overwhelming and it put it put fear into put fear into me but at the same time i was i was too paranoid to um get myself into a detox so i sat in that pain that misery and then once uh, everyone started no found out that I was doing meth and needles, um, it, they kind of wiped their hands with me, and it's like, okay, tough love. And that's why I think every addict needs to come, um, reaches that point of where they can't, um, all, their, all their resources are exhausted, 
and um, I just sat in my own self-pity, my own pain, my own misery for, it was a good two years, and then uh, I finally said, okay, you know what, uh, the only thing that's, the only thing that uh, is alive is my heartbeat, you know, I was just a walking dead out there, and it was just, it was ugly, you know, and I think that's what made me realize, you know, it's time to, I don't enjoy this anymore. Absolutely. So even though you had a lot of hardships in your life, there have been a lot of things happening as of late. Some things are looking up, essentially. Uh, what have been some of the positive things that have helped you get to this point in your life today? I would say the, the, the first step that helped me was getting to detox again in Main Street Project. And then I went into AFM um, just to get some, some sobriety, some weight back on, some, some clear, the, clear the fog out, and then start planning for my... You know, I was always a good starter, and but never a good finisher, right? So, but this time the pain, I, I keep that my last couple of years so close to me, so close to my heart and inside my head that I never ever want to feel that again. So that's one thing that's helping me is good people. I love the gym. I love cardio. I love weightlifting. And that's one thing that keeps my, keeps the, the mental and emotional uh, wellness at a, at a peak, you know, and it's that feel-good endorphin, you know, high that you can't get from anything else, right? Absolutely, and you just ran a marathon, is that right? I ran a half. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. and um, Manitoba Marathon, they contacted me and they gave me a, a full spot for the, uh, the full marathon, and uh, I'm training for that right now. Wow. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm... I've been doing a lot of YouTube videos and I'm very um, resourceful, you know, and so I, I up my uh, my Wednesday and Sunday run to 15 miles. I'm going to go for wow. 17 next, you know, and then, yeah, so I, I'm like, it's crazy, man. Like three years ago, I was broken in a wheelchair and wow. uh, it just goes to show you what, what persistence and strength goes, you know, it's just, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of other positive things in your life, let's talk a little bit about this whole pay it forward thing. What were you doing when you first found out that you were chosen, and how did it feel? I didn't even know what I was in for. Yeah. You know, I really didn't. He's like, "Do you want to go to Jessica?" I'm mean, like, eh, "Sure, I guess so." You know, he's like, "What about the, uh, the whiteout?" I'm like, "Wow," because I was in jail last year watching the whiteout. I was like, "Wow, that is an experience and a half," you know. Wow. And um, so yeah, and then uh, he picked me up. Um, and he's like, we're going to go do a little bit of shopping. And I was like, okay, you know, I was happy with a new pair of running shoes, man, because my running shoes were just beat, right? And it turns out there was so many donations for so, so many clothes and all this. It was overwhelming. Absolutely. So based on that, what, what was the support from the community like? How did that feel? I'm just really grateful. And I've the, the feedback I've got from so many so many aunties, uncles, moms, dads reaching out to me about what can they do about their niece, their nephew, their son, their daughter, their sister, their brother. And I am so quick to just give them like what worked for me and um, the, the steps to get into a detox, the steps to get into an AFM, the steps to get into a recovery place. And that's, that's what I know. That was my whole life for 17 years, wow. in and out of detox treatment all in different provinces, you know, and so the, 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 the support is, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm so grateful for Pay For and for Ryan, man. It was uh, an experience, and the people on the, the page are amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
What was something you learned about the community after having had this experience? That there are a lot more people willing to help out and give and actually care than than what I thought. You know, I thought this was a uh, selfish world, but there actually are people who love and care and want to see people succeed. You know? And one great thing about the concept of pay it forward is that the gift keeps on giving. How do you hope to pay it forward in the future? I know you mentioned like, you know, you were giving advice, but what, what are other things are in your mind about, you know, the whole pay it forward? Well, one lady from uh, Red River College, um, she knew, um, she knew Kim from the CBC interview mm. and, uh, and uh, she knows how much I love to run and what it's doing for me. And she asked me if I wanted to start an organization to help uh, underprivileged kids who can't afford running shoes or who just love to get out there and run. And, you know, and right now my schooling is my most important thing. But at the same time, that's, that's how I see giving back. Just, just being genuine and just being there for anyone, like helping someone across the street, Financially, I'm kind of strapped and it's student loan and whatnot, but, you know, in time it would be, it'd be nice to get the ball rolling on this, uh, on this uh, running organization. Absolutely. Yeah. If you could say anything to Ryan and all the folks behind Pay It Forward, what would that be? You guys have been uh, amazing support. Ryan, you're awesome. I love your scooter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just keep doing what you guys are doing, man. It's making a difference. And uh, it really changed my life, and I'm sure it'll change someone else's too. If you could say something to your former self or someone who's currently going through a hard time in their life, what would that be? Give it up. It's not fun, no matter what it tells you. Again, thank you so much, Travis, for joining us today on Because Radio. Um, thanks to Travis, Ryan, and everyone involved with Pay It Forward Winnipeg for making our city a better place and for sharing their story of impact. If you or anyone you know is making an impact in our city, you can DM us on social media by searching the Winnipeg Foundation at WPGFDN or reach out and call us at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. We'd love to hear about it. I'm Sonny Promolo for Because Radio. Thanks, Sonny. Coming up next, Nolan Bicknell will join me to share a preview of the latest episode of Because and Effect with Bruce McDonald, President and CEO of Imagine Canada. Welcome back to Because Radio. My name is Robert Zirk, and I am now joined in studio by Nolan Bicknell. He is the host of Because and Effect, a podcast with new episodes dropping every Tuesday. Nolan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Rob. Great to be here. So, Because in Effect is now on its seventh episode. Tell us a little bit about your guest and what you talked about. Sure, I'd love to. Um, episode seven features Bruce McDonald. Uh, I know you've interviewed him before on your radio show. Uh, he is the president and CEO of Imagine Canada. We had to have him on the podcast after I heard your radio with him because he's just such an interesting guy. Um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about philanthropy, sort of on a national scale, scale, but it was also very interesting what he had to say about local stuff as well. We wanted to talk about philanthropy, talk about giving, talk about his history a little bit, and just kind of talk about the importance of giving back when it comes to how people approach the, the, the nonprofit and charitable sectors. You know, before we kind of get into what Bruce is saying, um, 
I want to tell you about a little bit about the format of the show. We've been getting every single guest to say a little statement about who they or why they care about the causes that they do at the start of every episode. If our listeners have uh, heard on CJ and you, there's probably been some advertisements in different parts about people saying their statements that start with because dot 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 and usually what they say. Bruce's was one of the most effective despite being one of the shortest. Because the difference you make today counts in all our tomorrows. That's so succinct and, and so very true. Yeah, I loved it. And uh, he, Bruce basically spoke like that throughout the whole conversation. He was just such a well-mannered and well-spoken uh, guy, and it was really cool. He has such a vast focus and understanding and knowledge on sort of the national and international trends when it comes to philanthropy. So it was, it was cool to see that his because statement really mattered for everyone because that's what his work does every day. What Bruce talked about quite a bit was trust, too. He was really focusing on trust and the trust of donors, the trust of volunteers, and the trust of those benefiting from the philanthropic sector. Regardless of whether you are a place of worship, an arts and culture organization, um, sport, working with older adults, mental health services, hospitals, universities, you name it, trust is at the heart of the offering that we have. And that could be trust to say, I'm a parent who is going to allow my child to participate in a program. Trust from the perspective of maybe a middle-aged person who's doing elder care and entrusting their parents to a program. Trust as it relates to giving you my hard-earned time and my hard-earned money. Um, And so it really is a universal principle for us as a sector. We are living in an environment where Trust in institutions globally is dropping, whether it's with government, whether it's with leaders, whether it is, um, you know, with corporate uh, entities. Mm -hmm. And that because many charitable organizations are, in fact, identified as longstanding institutions, that that sort of global transformation is also affecting our sector. So we're not immune to it. We don't operate in a bubble. So from his perspective, trust is actually dropping in the charitable sector? Well, yeah, sort of. Um, j- just because groups are under such scrutiny nowadays, thanks to the internet, you can do a quick Google search on whatever you know cause or organization that you want to support. You have to make sure that all your ducks are in order and you're a transparent organization just so people can trust you. Otherwise, they'll wonder what you're hiding, basically. So would you say that Imagine Canada's goal is to reinforce trust in the charitable sector? Uh, yeah, not maybe not directly, but sort of. Bruce talked about the importance of educating the public and the importance of just bringing the public into the room, basically, to ask whatever questions they might might have about the sector. And that, in turn, will help them make informed decisions, which will, in turn, lead them to having a higher trust in the groups that are doing that good work. We actually believe at Imagine Canada that part of our role is to invite questions and inquisitiveness about the sector. So for us to just simply say we want to educate Canadians, we have neither the capacity nor the bandwidth to do it, um, and we actually can't necessarily get at all of them. However, if we can create places of questioning where Canadians now come to the sector saying, I don't understand this, or I'd like to learn more, or, or tell me about this, we've created an opening where they're receptive to information. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So. Let's talk about these podcasts and the conversations that you have. They often go anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. And one of the things that I've really appreciated is learning about the backstory of the people that you talk to. 
tell us about Bruce's backstory. Sure, yeah, it kind of came out of left field. I had no idea because he's such a, you know, he wears a suit and tie and he's a very well-spoken, well-mannered individual, but he grew up at a carnival. Bruce's dad was a carny, and those are his words, not mine. He he grew up at the carnival, but it that didn't stop. It actually probably helped him learn about the values of philanthropy and giving back. It's It's quite the story. My dad was a carny, and I worked in carnivals my entire upbringing, but the way he came into it was he, he, as persuaded by my mom, would bring a carnival into Hamilton, which is where I'm from. Very cool. And um, we would raise money for MS Research as part of the carnival. Cool. And so it had transferred through my upbringing, yeah. and it really was kind of just part of who I was. So when I thought about a career, I felt very strongly that I wanted to get up in the morning and do something that was making a difference mm-hmm. um, to Canadian society. That's a great story, and and I can definitely see that how uh, growing up in that environment, you get to know so many different people. You're traveling a lot, so you're visiting, you know, different communities, and so I can really see how that would tie into you know his work later on. Mm-hmm. A narrative that you often hear about the nonprofit sector is that you know it's stressed and it's often stretching limited resources as far as they can go. Did Bruce address that, and, and what did he have to say? Sure. I actually asked him pretty much just about that. I asked him if, like, in the future, groups are going to have to tighten their belts to make ends meet with what sort of the which way the trends are going. Hopefully it's not about tightening our belts. Hopefully it, it's a, well, I'm going to switch analogies here. In, instead of looking for, you know, smaller pieces of the pie, hopefully we think more about baking more pies. Um, and actually expand the space. Are the trends continuing? Yes. I mean, our research over the last 30 years shows that a higher concentration of wealthy, older Canadians are giving more and more of the money to the point where we're projecting that in the next 10 to 15 years, about $4.3 billion is in serious jeopardy of exiting the charitable system. And that is because that money now is coming from donors who are already in their 70s, 80s, and mm. 90s. So you talked about some of the existing trends. Did Bruce express his vision for for what he thought the future of philanthropy might look like in Canada? Yeah, I asked him if the trends were going to continue, um, what can be done when it comes to the next generation of donors and, and philanthropists, and he threw some questions back at me as well. I mean, are we engaging the middle-aged children of our older donors at all in right. this? You know, what are we doing to connect with young people who their economic starting point is so fundamentally different than that of their parents and grandparents, it's not as they don't have a desire for social good. They don't have the means. Mm -hmm. And at the end of every podcast, you have Just Because. So seven quick questions that you ask everyone who's a guest on the show. Um, And often these have some of the, you know, some really standout highlights. Um, Were there any from Bruce's that you wanted to share? They do. This is quickly becoming my favorite part of the podcast because it's really interesting to see how people answer some of these questions. Um, Every answer of Bruce's was great, but one really stood out when I asked him what the biggest stigma surrounding his cause was. That it doesn't take money to do social good. And what I mean is, it doesn't take money to have professional services to do social good. I think far too often people are still thinking that the work of charity should be done for free. That's something that we really should focus on, that if you want good people to do good work, they need to 
be properly compensated for that work and that they're not always just struggling to get by. For sure. So if you want to hear the full conversation with Bruce McDonald of Imagine Canada and some of his insights on the charitable sector in Canada, you can be sure to get the podcast at becauseandeffect.org. That's because, A-N-D, effect.org. And new episodes come out every Tuesday. Um, so wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe and uh, and get every show as it comes out every Tuesday. Nolan Bicknell is the host of Because and Effect. Nolan, thank you again so much for joining me today. Thanks, Rob. See you later. That's a wrap for today's episode of Because Radio. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to all of our guests who joined us today. Because Radio is produced by the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU-FM. Our Because Radio theme music, Call of the North, was written and performed by Micah Ehrenberg. You can find more of his music at micaehrenberg.com. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our podcast, please visit becauseradio.org. Again, that's becauseradio.org. If you have any feedback about today's show, ideas for stories, or Winnipeg Impact Makers, please give us a call at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Or you can send us an email at becauseradio at wpgfdn.org. And you can also follow the Winnipeg Foundation on social media at WPGFDN, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Robert Zirk, signing off for Because Radio. On behalf of my co-host, Sonny Primolo, thank you so much for listening, and have a great weekend.